Go to John chapter 5 with me this morning. John chapter 5, as we continue in our series of Conversations with Christ. But I will tell you that the next number of messages in John are going to feel very one-sided because Jesus is the one that does most of the talking. And so we're going to look at this morning, part 1, I'm going to read verses 19 to 47, but basically in a way of a title, you'll see it in your bulletin insert, I've said Jesus' defense of himself. So Jesus now stands up and defends himself, and he's defending himself versus the God delusion. In fact, there's a big book out recently in a number of years called The God Delusion. God Delusion. I think it's Richard Dawkins wrote it. It's called The God Delusion. I wouldn't encourage you to go buy it because I think it's not worth the paper it's printed on. But I want you to know that that is a very much a part of the 21st century struggle or wrestling match. Who is Jesus? And there is a God Delusion. But I want you to know that's not new to the planet. So let me set it up like this before I read the passage, because I think if you even came close to watching any kind of news, reading any kind of news, listening to any kind of news, watching Twitter or anything at all, I think I can ask this question and you'd be like, look at me with a very sheepish grin, which is this, how confused is the world when it comes to Jesus and God and what real Christianity is? All you got to do is watch the news. Extremes about Jesus abound everywhere. There's fundamentalists on one end, liberals on the other, atheists are in the middle, not to mention there's the skeptics, the agnostics, and the plain old secularists of our day. But it's not unfair for anyone to ask, how can a person know God? Truth is not afraid of a question, and I don't think it's an unfair question. I love it when people ask me, how do you think you know you know God? I'm glad you asked. That's, I think, is a very fair question. How do we know if Jesus was indeed who he claimed to be? And supposing that it is possible to know him, how can the things said about God by those who claim to possess his such knowledge be verified? And that's what you're actually going to see the beginnings of in John chapter 5, 19 to 47. You see, the first century was no different than the 21st century. Jesus is loved and hated. Would you say that's not true of today? Jesus is loved and hated? I mean, come on, let's be honest. He is. That's the truth. He is both sought after and yet misunderstood, misquoted, and misapplied, and many other misses. Some folks will deny him. Other people will swear by him. And on top of that, far too many will actually use his name to swear in general. I find it funny when someone who denies Jesus decides to express their frustration in his name. That's funny. What I find fascinating is when the world that largely now denies God uses God terminology. What about this expression? Have you heard this? God bless you. I find it fascinating when I hear that at the end of award shows where largely the participants want to deny God exists or bless his heart. Bless his heart. Bless her heart by people that would no more bless you than they'd smack you upside the head. But push someone on what those expressions mean as defined by the Bible, and well, you might get another expression. The funny thing is, from the person trying to prove he doesn't exist, which by the way is funny in and itself, why would you bother expending energy proving someone doesn't exist if you don't believe they exist? To the person who claims to love and trust Jesus as God, I honestly doubt any of us take the time, or any of you, may I submit this, to take the time to let John chapter 5, 19 to 47, mesmerize us with the weight of what Jesus says in these verses. Now to be honest, we need to think through at least a little bit of what we claim to be as Christians here this morning. We are gathered here as a group of Christians 
and we together form a church. According to the Bible, we're the bride of Christ. Let me tell you some things we believe. I almost called Jennifer and asked her to sing the creed, and I decided not to at the last minute, but that song talks about this. But listen now carefully to what we say we believe. If you're a visitor, this is what the people that call this church home say we believe. We believe that God exists before time and outside of time. That's what we believe. We believe that God created all things. Not just some stuff, all things. We believe that God is Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is what we believe. We believe that Jesus is God in the flesh simultaneously fully God and fully human. We believe that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit to the Virgin Mary and born without sin. This is what we believe. This isn't like our opinion. This is what we believe. We believe that Jesus lived a normal human life all the while being God. He performed miracles and was ultimately rejected, arrested, beaten, crucified, and died innocently for humanity in the will of God as preordained, the preordained plan of the Trinity. This is what we believe. We believe that Jesus, three days later, rose from the dead of himself. In fact, the Bible tells us that after Jesus rose from the dead, he was seen of well over 500 witnesses, and that 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven in front of witnesses, I might add. And now we believe that Jesus is alive. He is reigning at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us, meditating for us, and providing for us. This is what we believe. And finally, we believe that Jesus will come again physically to this earth to deal a final blow to death, sin, and Satan, and to renew all of creation, all of it once and for all, for eternity. Amen? (laughs) Sometimes you are the very definition of anticlimactic. This is what we believe. See, here's my thing. I think you know this, but how many of us believe it? Believe it to that with the, to the point where the world looks at you and goes, "He's weird. She's just a little off." Think about it. We believe that God came in the flesh. If we believe all of this is true, then the question should be obvious, shouldn't it? How much of all of this affects the way we think and live and relate and treat life? Listen to me now. Now. That's what drove Paul to say in Philippians 1. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now you've heard that. That's likely on a wall somewhere in some of your homes. It's on a coffee mug, maybe even in a t-shirt somewhere that you own. But let me ask you, is that really the motto of your life? If I live today, I live for Christ. And if I die, that's my gain. And I say this to you as funerals happen today in Sutherland, Texas. A memorial service will happen at a church that became a war zone. And the world can't figure out what to do with these people because they grieve and they mourn, but as those who don't have hope because they believe that this stuff is true. And so they use words like forgiveness. And this one, I had to laugh when CNN covered this expression. God wanted them with him more than he wanted them on earth. And this poor old CNN anchor in a various attempt to be empathetic almost mocked the expression because they just don't get it. 
They just don't get it. How do we get it? If this is what we believe, it's why we can have contentment. It's why we are constant in prayer and Bible reading and witnessing. It's how we deal with suffering and sickness. It's the way that gives us a, a way that, that, that can, confuses and confounds and even irritates the world. If our belief is the above, forms our view of family. It forms our view of marriage and parenting. It gives us a perspective, the right one of money. It shows you what the purpose of your job. It, it motivates missions. It helps you to love your enemy. It helps you to die well, as Plenty the Younger said about Christians when he wrote to Trajan the Emperor, and he said, I don't know what to do with these Christians, but I'll tell you one thing, they die well. That's what he said. All of life is affected by these realities. Even how we deal with sin and failure and overcoming our past is all affected if what I just read is what we truly believe. So the question is, do you really believe this beyond just the compartmentalizing of your life? Just when you come to church on a Sunday, just when life gets really, really bad, too many Christians treat Jesus like the fire hose at the hospital that has the big sign that says, break in case of emergency. When the fire hose is supposed to be with you, constant. So if you do believe this, and I want to look deeply into this passage for a few minutes today, and if you don't believe this, then I'm begging you to listen carefully to this passage, for this is the defense of Jesus by Jesus. This passage is the defense of Jesus by Jesus. He's addressing an accusation. He's been accused of being a blasphemer. This is a real God delusion in the first century. No different than the God delusion today. So let's look at John chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, his accusers, these are the ones, you got it twice in 17, I think again in 18, where now they want him dead they're going to persecute Jesus. They want him dead. And so Jesus decides to address his accusers. And he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does that the son does likewise for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him here's why so that you collectively may marvel verse 21 for as the father raises the dead and gives them life so also the son gives life to whom he will Verse 22, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Why? So that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Notice the back and forth. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who will hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Verse 28, do not marvel at this. I'm going to show you other things to marvel. Don't marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just. Why? Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And Jesus now reasons, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. 
But there is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John. He's talking about John the Baptist now. And he is borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, John, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one who he has sent. This is tragic, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now here's his closing remarks. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who already accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? If you could think in your minds as if Jesus were to look up and go, the defense rests. The defense rests. So if I don't know if you got this, but I get, I get a feel that this passage is like I'm back into a courtroom. I feel like Jesus' identity, his actions, his claims, in essence, his person's on trial, and life is at stake, his and ours. Now, if you were here last week, you saw in the healing of the lame man in the first 18 verses of John 5 that Jesus busted up the traditions of the religious, and he busted up the superstitions of the poor and the marginalized and the hurting. Now, you'll note a, a completely different approach from Jesus in those first 18 verses. Jesus was merciful. He was gentle to the hurting. He was kind and compassionate and patient with the confused and the poor and the searching. But it seems that he deliberately goes on the offense. It's almost like he's attacking the religious elite, the upper class. And it was not met well with those in power or in charge. And that's what you have in verse 16, 17, and 18. So verses 19 to 47, as I said, Jesus addresses his, his accusers. Now John has already told us that in some respect, we, you and I have read this, we're looking at this, we're kind of the jury. We're the jury. We're, we're told that John tells us his purpose is to make us understand what Jesus did. That's chapter 20, 30, and 31. But this passage of Scripture might well be one of the greatest descriptions of Jesus' divinity in all the Bible. J.C. Ryle, that Anglican bishop, put it like this. There are few chapters in the Bible, perhaps, where we feel our own shallowness of understanding so thoroughly and discover so completely the insufficiency of all human language to express the deep things of God. Men are often saying they want explanations of the mysteries of the Christian faith, the Trinity, the Incarnation, the person of Christ, and the like. Let them just observe. When we do find a passage full of explanatory statements on a deep subject, how much there is that we have no line to fathom and no mind to take it in. I want more light, says the proud man. And God gives him his desire in this chapter and lifts up the veil a little. But behold, we are dazzled by the very light we wanted and we find that we have not eyes to take it all in. Only one thing is certain. 
And this particular quote I'm going to give you, I've seen in almost every commentary I've studied on this passage from J.C. Ryle. Nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father. His divine commission and authority and the proofs of his Messiahship as we find in this discord. Ryle says, to me it seems that this is one of the deepest things in the Bible. Oh, that I would get you to marinate in John 5. Now this passage actually breaks it down very nicely. All right, in verses 19 to 24, we see that Jesus is God because he's equal with God, all right? In verses 25 to 29, we see that Jesus has power over life and death, just like God does. In verses 30 to 40, we see a a declaration of witnesses. And then finally, 41 to 47 are like his closing arguments. For today, I'm just going to look at 19 to 24. I got one point. You might be going, yay, Steve, one point. So here it is. Jesus is God. Why? Because he's equal with God. We believe that Jesus is God, fully God and fully human. So he's equal with God. And so really verses 19 to 24, I could use this expression that many times I heard growing up like father, like son. Have you heard that expression? You know, when you see someone, you, you, you catch, a, I've had this happen to me already since Brandon has moved back. I've had some people write me or call me and say, man, I don't know what it is, Steve, but the older Brandon gets, the more he acts like you. And I don't know if that's a compliment or an insult, but I just know that they say it. All right. Like father, like son. Some will even say that can be like daughter, like son or father, because some people say that Abby is a lot like me. And so we'll get that, you know, she's just like you. He's just like you. Here Jesus lays out, I am God. Why? Because look at me, I'm just like my father. Jesus addresses the audience by reminding them, I make this claim because I act like who I am, God. Notice how he starts verse 19. Truly, truly. That's a John expression there when he quotes Jesus to say this. And that's Jesus' way of saying, pay attention, listen up. Maybe in our case it could be, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. This is no ordinary sermon. This is John saying what he did about Jesus. Remember what he said back in chapter 118? No one has ever seen God, the only God, who was at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him, God, known. Now Jesus steps up and says officially, I am that one. Look back at verse 17 again. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And they knew what he meant. That's why verse 18 says, they want him dead. There was no confusion about what Jesus was trying to say. Again, I go back to J.C. Ryle. And I've noticed that J.C. Ryle, if you haven't read him, get him and read him. Because I said, yeah, I have probably... 30 or 40 different commentaries written over the last hundreds of years. And everyone that wrote a commentary after this man was alive quotes him. So I've decided I'm just going to cut out a bunch of reading and I just go read J.C. Ryle. But he does a great job because he says, this verse begins a long discord in which our Lord formally defends himself from the charge of the Jews. And he really lays it down nicely. He asserts, in verses 19 to 24, his own divine authority, his commission, his dignity, his equality with God the Father. In the next passage, he brings forward the evidence of his divine commission, which the Jews ought to consider and receive. And finally, he tells the Jews plainly the reason for their unbelief in verses 40 onward. And charges home on their consciences, their love of man's praise more than God's and their inconsistency in pretending to honor Moses while they did not honor Christ. So I want us to dig in. Notice the word in verses 19 to 24. Notice this little word. If you're writing your Bible, notice the word for, F-O-R. You're going to see that come up four times. Four shows itself four times. And each time it's another clause. It's another part of Jesus' defense. And that'll help you outline your passage. So look at 19 and 20, because here's Jesus' first reason. Jesus and God are equal in their works. Jesus and God are equal in their works, 19 and 20. All right, notice what Jesus says. 
So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. That's like Father, like Son. Verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is in himself is doing. And greater works than these will, sh- will he show him so that you may marvel. Now, you got to get a background on this, all right? So stay with me. Keep your thinking caps on. Got to give you a bit of background in Judaism. The famous passage of the Bible for all of Judaism, even to this day, is what's called the Shema. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Simply in verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then you know that's where Jesus gets, because the next verses are, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, right? And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus would once they say, These were the two great commandments. In my office, I have what's called a uh, menorah, not a menorah. Um, I've forgotten the name of it. It goes on the side, the right-hand side of a Jewish doorpost. Mezuzah, thank you. And so any good Jewish person, they put that on the side of their doorpost. It's reminding them of Deuteronomy and the Passover. And they go by it. And if they go by it, they kiss it and they touch their heart. And inside of the mezuzah, which I have one, is this passage, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 8. If you've ever seen uh, really observant Jews, and they have these things called phylacteries wrapped around their arms. Some of them will have these things wrapped around their heads, and they stick out, and there's like a little box on the end. Inside of these, again, is Deuteronomy chapter 6. And that's because in that passage it says, you shall bind them around your arms and you shall have them as frontlets before your eyes. And so the Jews took all this stuff and they didn't see the principle, they saw the literalness. And so that's what they do. So this is very important. And so here is Jesus. We already know from the verse of this chapter, he healed on the Sabbath and he claimed authority over the Sabbath. That was unheard of and unacceptable to the religious establishment. And so they had already constructed their view of quote-unquote what was acceptable, and Jesus didn't fit the mold. And so now Jesus explains. He says, you not only keep the Sabbath wrong, you misunderstood its application, and you completely miss God. Because he says God didn't rest on the Sabbath like he needed a rest. That's not what he did. He steps back and looks at the glory of his creation and he enjoys it. And the Trinity created man and woman. And in Genesis 2, Moses, who writes this, tells us, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Why? Because on it, God rested, notice this, from all his works that he had done in creation. That's what he rested from. It wasn't like God just said, okay, I'm going to take a day off from being God. That's not what he means. He rested from creation, not from being God. God continues to work his redemptive plan. And Jesus is working that redemptive plan. In fact, Jesus says, I am the redemptive plan. And so he starts by saying, I am in perfect unity with the Father. Why? Because of my perfect obedience to him. Because I am him. And so Jesus says, I am perfect in value. I'm equal in every way. But for you and I this morning, Jesus is the supreme example of what perfect submission looks like. When we sing blessed assurance, I think we gloss over our terms. Perfect submission. All is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Why would the writer write that if it wasn't because he looked at Jesus Christ who is the ultimate role, equal with God, yet perfect in his submission to grow to the role of God the Son, not God the Father. In fact, as God the Son, he brought glory in love for his Father. And Jesus does all that the Father does. Now, think through what that must mean. If Jesus can do all that the Father does, then that must mean that Jesus is all-knowing, that he's all-powerful, he's all-present, and he's almighty because he could never perfectly obey without being perfect. And verse 20 takes it even farther because he says, the Father loves the Son. And I have to tell you, this is my favorite part because God the Father loves God the Son and then says, shows him all things. So Jesus says, look, there's nothing I don't know. And if there's nothing that he doesn't know, then it must mean he's equal with God. The Father loves him. 
Jesus' ministry to us is rooted in and empowered by his relationship to God the Father. And this love is a present tense love. It's a supremely intense love. It's as if Jesus is saying, you're you're impressed now, but you haven't seen anything yet. Because the end of verse 20 says, redemption's anticipated plan will become a reality before their very eyes. And he says, you will see greater works with these and you're going to marvel at this. When even a, a Roman centurion would stand at the foot of the cross where Jesus dies and will say, truly this must have been the Son of God. What prophets announced what angels would proclaim, what kings hoped for and longed for, what Israel prayed for has come. Jesus. But what more, the Bible tells us that God loves us. Jesus loves us. Now, I want you to get ready for this, okay? The same way that God the Father loves God the Son is the same way that God the Father loves you and I. Now, let that sink in. Is there a greater love? We're joint heirs with Christ. We are the sons and daughters of God. God, the Almighty, loves you in this perfect way. It's a relationship that makes our relationship with God possible and secure and amazing and eternal. Truly, it is amazing grace. Truly, it is as that hymn says, amazing love. Can it be? But now look at verse 21. Jesus and God are equal in their power and sovereignty. Okay? In 19 and 20, Jesus tells us about his relationship within the Trinity as the Son of God. In 20 and 21, Jesus tells us he is God because of his power over life and death with complete sovereignty. Look at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son, notice this, gives life, to whom he will. Now, don't miss that, to whom he will. Now, again, you got to know a bit of Jewish background, okay? In the first century, the Jewish rabbis had a saying. Here it is. I think this will be on the screen. Three keys are in the hand of God, and they are not given into the hand of any agent, namely, that of rain, that of the womb, and that of raising the dead. That's actually taking out of rabbinical sayings. So now think that through. God displayed control over the rain right back in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 18. The Holy Spirit showed power over the womb in the conception of Jesus Christ in the Virgin Mary. And Jesus would now display it over life or death and the giving of life. And it's funny to know how much this is true. In the Old Testament that the healing of the Syrian general, remember Naaman who was told to go wash in the Jordan River seven times? And okay, the little, the little the Jewish slave girl tells them. And so he goes and the, the Syrian king sends a, a letter to the Israeli, is, uh, Israeli king. And he says, heal my, my servant, heal him. And here's what the Israeli king says in 1 Kings. Am I God to kill and to make alive? As a Jewish king, he knew. Look, you're asking me what only God can do. <laughs> now here's Jesus. And he readily accepts that mantra he even proclaims this to be true of himself and while he will perform several raisings from the dead we're going to come to it in john chapter 11 lazarus is the miracle above all others and here's the reason why because he was dead for four days and you got to realize in judaism maybe the soul of a person would hang around close to them for about three days but after that there's no hope that's why Jesus deliberately waits four days. Because when he shows up, that's why there's such hopelessness in Mary and Martha. That's why they're like, are you kidding? You would show up now? If you showed up to a day ago, maybe. If you'd have been here on the day he died or within hours of his death, maybe. But four days later? And of course, who could argue the only thing that would top a Lazarus resurrection is when Jesus rises from the dead himself three days later. And that, by the way, is what the end of verse 20 is all about. So Jesus says that he raises the dead and gives them life. We're going to look at that in verses 25 to 29. Leon Morris, the commentator, says, Just as the Father takes dead bodies and raises them to new life, 
So Jesus takes people who, though their bodies are alive, are yet in a state of death and raises them to spiritual life. This is what Jesus meant when he said to Zacchaeus, remember up in the sycamore tree? Today, salvation has come to your home. That's why Paul means in Ephesians chapter 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. Jesus takes the full sovereign power of God in these closing words of verse 21. And he says, I have the power to give life to whom I will. See, he's the only example of absolute power that doesn't corrupt absolutely. Jesus has already shown us how he initiates with the disciples. He picked the Samaritan woman. He chooses the lame man. Yet from our point of view, we're the ones who say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. You see, Jesus sovereignly chooses, and yet we, from our perspective, we find him. How many testimonies have you heard that said, I was lost, and then I found Jesus? You never hear anybody say, well, Jesus was lost, and I found him. You never hear that. And so you see the sovereignty of God. Next, Jesus will claim that what has got to be the most negative of his claims, though, look at verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. You see, Jesus and God are equal in their judgment. You remember back in John chapter 3, verse 17? I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that all the world through me should be saved. Why did he say that? Because the world's already condemned. So Jesus came to save. Yet because Jesus is God, he's holy. And a holy God must and will pronounce judgment upon a sinful humanity. One of the most confusing books of the Bible, in our small group on Tuesday morning, we read the first seven chapters of this, is the book of Revelation. And I find that people either ignore the book of Revelation or they play with it. They're fascinated by it and they try and turn it into like the Star Wars of the New Testament. But many people don't actually sit and think through what is back there. In Genesis chapter, or sorry, in Revelation chapter 20, listen to this description of this judgment. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw, and by the way, this is John the Apostle who writes John 5, is writing this. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You see, back in John 5, this is why Jesus wasn't blasphemous when he healed on the Sabbath. He is to be worshiped. And this, by the way, is why he insisted that Jesus is the only way to be saved. The only way to be right with God. It's not because we are elitist that we say this. It's because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he has power over life and death. And he has the power to execute judgment. And only he has it. And so that makes verses 23 and 24 make sense. Because Jesus and God are equal in honor. In honor. And believe it or not, for all of the claims that Jesus makes in these first few verses, I actually think this is what ticks off the Jews the most. I really do. And I don't want you to get confused about something, all right? Two things the Jews never doubt or argue with Jesus about. Number one, his miracles. Number two, his messiahship claims. They never argue with him about those two things. Have you noticed that? See, the commentator Whitby remarks, the Jews never accused our Lord of blasphemy for saying that he was the Messiah, but for saying that he was the Son of God. Because they did not believe that Messiah, when he appeared, was to be a divine person. They were looking for a Savior. They just didn't believe that the Savior would be God. 
And so if Jesus was quite willing to say, I'm the Messiah, they might have even given him a pass. That's why at times the crowd were like, will you overthrow Rome now? Will you set up a kingdom now? They were willing, willing and ready. But when he says, no, I am God in the flesh, then they didn't want him. See, Richard Phillips sums it up like this. It has become acceptable today for preachers to suggest that people who deny Christ might be saved out of the sincerity of their religious views or their moral piety. But God himself rejects such an idea and such falsely humble preaching. Knowing this, we must lovingly and prayerfully and earnestly say to our Jewish friends, our humanist friends, our liberal Protestant friends, and many others that without honoring Christ, they are dishonoring God the Father. Again, I quote J.C. Ryle who says, Whenever therefore anyone through ignorance or pride or unbelief neglects Christ, but professes at the same time to honor God, he is committing a mighty error. And so far from pleasing God is greatly displeasing him. And I submit, if this ended here at verse 23, all you and I'd have, we'd have enough information for Jesus to make his case and for us to be condemned. And it would be a really bad place for me to end. But I love verse 24. Look at what he says, because it's filled with promise and invitation. Jesus still looks at his own accusers and says, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. That's the language of the New Testament. It's what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Revelation ends with a call to the thirsty to come and drink. It calls those who have ears to come and hear. And since Jesus only can claim to be God, Jesus only can lovingly claim to love and invite us to come and receive eternal life. So don't let this last verse of 23 be the only thing you hear. Hear this call. Hear these words. And so I ask you, have you heard the word of God today? Have you heard the word of God? Don't play church. Hear Jesus speak to you. Have you seen that Jesus' invitation is for everyone? Friends, I believe in the unmitigated sovereignty of God. But that unmitigated sovereignty is expressed out to everyone. Come to me. And have you seen that Jesus promises both a past, present, and future effective promise? Has eternal life. You have it now. You'll always have it. You'll never lose it. It will be yours for eternity. It not only ends, never ends, but it also only ever gets better. And when you and I respond to this invitation, when we believe in and trust and obey God our Father, you know what happens to people like that? They have attitude changes. They have worldview changes. Their view of other people changes. And so, with a host of applications, let me just give you these. We must heed what Jesus says about us. We've got to do that. You see, in these verses, Jesus' description of himself is also a description of us, and it flies in the face of modern self-esteem obsession. In fact, if you think about all of John, from Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, the nobleman, the lame man, including each of the disciples, the religious establishment, are all confronted with the same message. Self-esteem won't save you. Not getting to be a better self. Nothing will save you. No one will save you. Only Jesus saves. Why? Because he knows you better than you know yourself. R.C. Sproul does it so well. He says, you can know about Jesus and not have a personal relationship with Jesus. A real relationship moves beyond just acknowledgement to substance. I, I took Abby out to Swiss Chalet for supper last night because I didn't want to make any dirty, dirty dishes and I want the house to be spotless and everything. So when Deb comes back, she thinks I'm a great husband, all right? But I was telling Abby when we were sitting down for supper how weird this was for me because in our marriage, mostly I'm the one doing the traveling. And it was so weird for me to be the one at home where everything is normal and everything familiar and Debbie's the one who's away. And I miss her. 
I miss her. I have a knowledge of her, but I miss her because there's something deeper. I don't love Debbie simply because she knows things about me. But when Debbie tells me things about me, I believe her and I respond. You see, my love means I trust her. I know she's not trying to hurt me. She loves me. Debbie is way better at showing me my blind blind spots. So imagine how good Jesus Christ is at telling me who I really am. You've heard me say this many times. The hardest thing in life is to be honest with yourself. But Jesus is truth. He cannot and will not lie to you. And he is love. Which means when he tells you the truth about you, no matter how bad it is or dark it is or condemning it is, he doesn't tell this to you to hurt you or to shame you or to hold you down. He tells you the truth so you can be free and you can be saved and you can be transformed into his image. Secondly, we must embrace and believe who Jesus is. You got to believe what Jesus says about you, but you got to believe what Jesus says about himself. John Piper says it so well. We need a bigger view of God, not a better view of ourselves. He, Jesus, is the root of our happiness, not our self-esteem. You were made to be stunned by God, not just feel good about yourself. You'll find your true self when you forget yourself. These are the things that we need. Christ is a well of life, but who knoweth how deep is the bottom? Friends, think this through. For this is where you'll decide on your worldview, your grid by which you process life and how you live it out. And you know what? I look out on some of you and I know people in the city and I come across people. I interact with friends just this week and I've known too many friends who said at one point they were quote unquote a Christian. I've told you this about my own wedding photos. We have wedding photos on a wall and last night I was in the living room by myself and I was staring around and I was looking at these these pictures and again I took note of the fact that of all the groomsmen that stood in my wedding... Over half of them now, 25 years later, would completely deny Christ. Yet every person on that stage that day, when I and my wife got married, said, I'm a Christian. Now more than half of them would say, I don't believe in Jesus. And they would have said, I had a faith and then I walked away from it. Oz Guinness says this, Sometimes when I listen to people who say they have lost their faith, I am far less surprised than they expect. If their view of God is what they say, then it is also surprising that they did not reject it much earlier. You see, if you think of Jesus as your genie in a bottle, if you think of Jesus as your best life now, if you think of Jesus as your rabbit's foot, if you think of Jesus as a great add-on who gives you insights into life, then I know you're going to walk away at some point. But if Jesus is God, then you can trust him. What he says is true. When he tells you he loves you, he does. When he promises never to leave you, he won't. At your lowest, he is there. At your best, he is there. And you can go to him with your questions and your doubts and your fears and your confessions and your regrets and your failures. And you can give your life to him. With Jesus as God, John chapter 1 is so much more than a sentence, right? But to all who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God who were born. Then Romans 8 is far better than just a cliche. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back in fear. But we now can cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Michael Horton says it so well, the triune God who made us for himself has won us to himself in Jesus. And then finally, you can run to and rest in his love. Oh, run to Jesus. Jesus is God who loves us the very same way that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit loves among themselves. Again, Michael Horton says, the God who made you, who has every reason to condemn you, has nevertheless determined to make you a co-heir with his Son. I leave you with these words. 1 John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Notice, and so we are. 
The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. Will you desperately cry out to the Holy Spirit of God to impress these truths and realities in you? Are you struggling in your marriage right now? Are you struggling with addiction? Are you struggling with parenting? Are you wrestling with money? Are you worried about a job? Are you, are you struggling with a relationship, even with the relationship of church itself? Are you doubting God or yourself? Jesus' words meant are, here, are, are meant here to arm you and protect you. Each person who was met in John's gospel had doubts. They lived in a world which yelled out, no, don't trust him. This is the tension that John is tackling, which you and I struggle with. <laughs> but as I shared with someone this week, have you ever seen that little toddler, if you're a parent, and that little toddler has decided that they want to do something that you already know they're not going to be able to pull off. And yet they don't want your help. And so they decide that they're going to do it. And you watch them struggle as they put every ounce of energy in it. And you can see the frustration and you can see the helplessness as they work at it and work at it and work at it. And every time you go closer, they go, no! And they do it and you know they're never going to pull it off. And finally, they've used up all their energy and all their strength and they're bitter tired. And now they're desperate and they're frustrated and they yell and they cry, Mom, Dad. And you go, I'm, I've been here the whole time. That's Jesus with you and I. We try so hard to do it ourselves and we just get frustrated and angry and we vent we lash out and we sometimes go, no, no, until you finally run out of steam. And you go, oh God, help me. And his words are, I've always been here. I never left. I love you because I'm God. The defense rests. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I pray that we will now come to the fount as we go our separate ways on this long weekend. Lord, so often, this is the scariest part of any Sunday for me when I realize how hopeless I am. But Lord, I want to change my prayer to beg of you to work in the hearts of the men and women and the people I love that have been in front of me Father, that you will forbid them from being able to push this sermon out of their hearts and minds, not because I preached a good sermon, but because this is the word of God. Oh God, that they will be honest with themselves as you were honest with them. That people will be changed by the word of God. And that, Father, we as Christians would 